When our oldest daughter, Miriam, was born, we were given by some friends a uh, children's Bible that we um, used to read to her just about every night. It's, we sought to tell her the stories of our faith and for her to uh, grow into a woman of faith. Um, we read it night after night, week after week. We'd read it most nights when she was young. And, um, and one of the things as I read it over and over again that became interesting to me were the editorial choices of what was in the children's Bible and what they had left out of the children's Bible. For example, they uh, talked a lot about Easter. There were colorful pictures and Jesus was smiling and he was alive and his friends are excited and they're all there. They didn't tell about the part of how he died. There was nothing about the nails or the whipping or the cross. Uh, they just sort of skipped that part and went to the fact that Jesus came back to life. Now, I know some of you right now are thinking, Thomas, you're a monster. You think yeah, that shouldn't be in a children's Bible, and I'm not saying it should be. I'm not saying you need like this graphic depiction of the cross in a children's Bible. I'm just saying it's an editorial choice, right? To make it even less dramatic, they uh, had these great pictures of Jesus with his friends, the disciples, and Zacchaeus, and they loved Zacchaeus, and Peter, and everybody was happy, and they were smiling, and just never had a cross word, and it was great, and they're there. What they didn't show was when Jesus has arrested all of these best buddies of his, all of him. They all, there were no colorful illustrations of Jesus under arrest and the disciples turning in the other direction, running and waving goodbye. There was no illustration of, uh, of Peter going, I don't know the man, three different times while Jesus was on trial. Again, you may be going, yeah, but it's a children's Bible, Thomas. I get that. I get that. But the reason I'm bringing it up is I'm not certain as adults we approach our faith very differently. There are certain things we love about the Bible. There are certain stories we love about the Bible. There are certain verses we love about the Bible. And then there's other ones where we're like, yeah, I don't really want to deal with that part. Take, for example, if you go into someone's house who's a, a, a follower of Jesus, who's a Christian, and maybe you have a, a cross up in your house. Maybe you have a cross in your house. Maybe you have scripture passages up. We do. It's interesting what scripture passages people tend to frame and put on walls. I would say uh, that this one from Joshua 1 is probably one of the most common. You see this sold in stores. People text it, encouraging to Joshua 1.9. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Don't be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. That's a great verse of scripture. No wonder people have that frame. No wonder we put that at the end of a letter. You know, Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There are these verses that we kind of love, and they're real, and they're good. We edit them in to our faith. Um, we do this in our house. Uh, upstairs in our house is, is, it has two rooms. It's where both of our uh, girls' bedrooms are. And Beth, my wife, found this um, picture that's framed. It's there. It's been there. I don't know if they've ever noticed it, but it's there when they walk into their bedrooms. Uh, it's, it's a Bible verse from Proverbs 31. It says this, She is clothed with strength and dignity, and she laughs without fear of the future. I love that my girls at least walk by it every, every day when they go into their rooms. But that's what we pick. Now, I do want you to know, in all of my times going into different houses, I've never seen this verse ever framed. <laughs> You're like a thief who feels shame only when he gets caught. You, your kings, officials, priests, and prophets, all are alike in this. I've never seen anyone who's like, oh, 
Jeremiah 2. I love that. I'm just going to kind of put it on our wall. I'm going to write my friend in the end, like Jeremiah 2, 26. You know, and they look it up and they're like, what is this? Like when, when Miriam's moving into college in a couple of months, we're not going to frame this and put it on her wall for a roommate to see. It's like, not only are you like a thief, you're so shameful. You only feel shame when you get caught. You don't actually have a conscience to feel shame. It's only if you're caught that you feel shame. And not only you, your heroes, your leaders, your politicians, your idols, all of you are the same. You are that bad. We edit that one out when we kind of weigh up what scripture passage is our favorite. But I wonder if there's a cost to our editing. I wonder if we missed things when we edit certain things and only focus on others. Uh, the, the, we're doing something a little different for Covenant this summer. We're following the lectionary texts over the summer, and so we're assigned certain texts. And I just want you to know that the one that's assigned for today is not in a children's Bible. I just, I want, I'm like straight up, and it is not one that anyone that I know of has ever framed and put on their, their, their wall, okay? I don't know anyone who's like, oh, Genesis 21, the one where Abraham and Sarah try to kill a child, that is so great. Just what I want to project to the world. But it's what's been assigned. And what I want you to know is I think there's something really important in the messiness and the difficulty of this text that if we look at it, it says something really important about us. And more importantly, it says something important about God. There's good news in this for us all to hear today. So, our Old Testament lectionary text, Genesis 21, verses 8 through 21. I invite you to listen to God's word to us today. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. She said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. The matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, don't be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for it is through Isaac that offspring shall be named for you. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham arose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, do not let me look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray no matter who we are or how we gather and worship today, what hopes, what doubts, 
opinions, that we would all experience your gospel today, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, friends, this is, this is a really hard passage of Scripture. It's a really painful day. And I want you to know from the beginning, there's nothing like seminary magic that I'm going to do that's like really culturally at the time, this is what it meant, so it doesn't seem as bad as what it really, it's really bad. It's just really, it's a really hard passage of Scripture. Hagar uh, is, is, is victimized in this. And so what we are going to do today is we're going to look at this passage of Scripture from two angles, from two perspectives, Okay. And I think each of these perspectives has an interesting look at this passage, but each of these perspectives can say something for us in the brokenness and in the hard places in our own life, okay? So we're gonna consider them both this morning. The first perspective is from the perspective of Hagar. What does her story here tell us about brokenness? What does it tell us about God? And what does it tell us about ourselves? And the second perspective is we need to look at this from the perspective of Abraham and Sarah and how they are a part of this brokenness and what they have to say and what God has to say to each of us in the pain of our own lives and the difficulty of our own lives, okay? So these two perspectives we're going to take a few minutes to look at. So the first one is from the perspective of Hagar and really her son Ishmael. And what happens here is that this unbelievable atrocity that takes place where she is literally sent out to die in the wilderness uh, with her son. Uh, this isn't the first horrible thing to happen for her. The reason she has a son with Abraham is not because they were in love. It's because Abraham and Sarah start doubting uh, that God's going to come through on God's promise to them of descendants. And so they take matters into their own hands and they take uh, a Hagar, who's their slave, and force her to have Abraham's son. And yet, as she is forced into this, this position, uh, she has Ishmael, he starts to be raised, and then all of a sudden, Isaac is born to Abraham and Sarah. And all of a sudden, this child, Ishmael, that Hagar didn't ask for, is now seen as a threat by Sarah, and they are sent away, sent out into the wilderness, defenseless into the desert. Uh, they are, they are, and Sarah, and to be clear here, and biblical scholars are really clear about it, Sarah is saying, we, I want them gone. I want them finished. They are not going to intrude on Isaac and on, there are, if you've heard terms, there's helicopter parents, and this has been changed. There's bulldozer parents now, which is, by the way, if you've ever been described as that, they weren't paying you a compliment when they did that. This is like the ultimate bulldozer parent. Like, I am going to wipe out anything that could oppose what my child's going to be. Literally. There's something in Sarah that in being threatened here, she reacts in this way, and Abraham's a part of it too, because it doesn't sit there and say that Abraham goes, no, that's wrong. That's my son. We're not going to do this. It says Abraham is distressed, which is an unbelievable weakness. Distressed? She's talking about your child needs to be sent out into the desert to die. And and it's like, oh, what am I going to do? There is something profoundly broken in this. And, and, And for Hagar, she has no agency. She has no voice. She is just sent out. Now, I know that in the Bible it says, uh, God said to Abram, this is all going to work out. But I doubt that was much consolation to Hagar. As she is given a skin of water, as she is given bread and just told to go. And so it says she wanders around in the desert until she has to face something that you would hope no parent ever has to face, which is as they run out of water, she takes her son Ishmael and puts him under a bush and then goes a, a, a distance away. So what? So that she doesn't hear his cries as he's dying of thirst. 
And it says she cries out to God, weeps and cries out to God in her pain. Now, I don't know what you have walked through in life. And I don't know how many of us have been gone through something as traumatic as what Hagar goes through. You might have. I don't know. I don't know all of your stories. But we all can relate to what Hagar experiences, at least, because we have been harmed. We have been wounded. We have had others inflict pain upon us, haven't we? We've been betrayed in life. We've been cheated on. We've been lied to. We've been talked about behind our backs. We've been torn down by other people. We have other people make assumptions and assume the worst of us, and it has affected our lives. And not only that, we have been impacted and sometimes brought to our knees by the pain that exists in this world where we have no agency, where we have no power. Maybe a medical diagnosis that you receive that turns your world upside down. Maybe the loss of somebody that you love. A grief that feels like it's going to swallow you up and you're not certain where to go or what to do in the midst of it. Watching the suffering of a loved one. We might not have the exact same story as Hagar, but we can relate to what it means to bear a pain that you don't know the way out of or what to do. As hard as that can be, there is an opportunity for growth, for spiritual growth in the midst of it. The Bible talks about seasons of pruning or refining. These are not fun times. Wilderness times are not fun times, but they're times when we're shaped, when we're molded. And what I want you to hear today is that if you are in those places, and all of us have those places of hurt, there is an opportunity for growth of being refined in these moments. One of the ways that John Ortberg talks about this is he talks about the difference that pain can do in your life when it helps you to move from somebody who hopes for something to hoping in someone. I'm going to say that again. The difference in hoping for something and moving to someone who hopes in someone. See, when pain first starts, we hope for something, and often our prayers will show that. Lord, you need to do this. I need this. My kids need this. My spouse needs this. Lord, these are the things that, that, that are broken, and here's what we need. We need this outcome to make things okay. But there are moments that Hagar is in right now where those things disappear because your desperation and your loss and your need becomes more overwhelming than you dictating to God how things should be. And Ortberg says that's when we start to trust and hope in someone. This is how Jesus teaches us to pray. We're going to say the Lord's Prayer in just a few minutes. And Jesus says when the disciples say, tell us how to pray with spiritual depth. Teach us what this looks like. He says, he says, don't sit there and go, well, I need this, my friends need this, my child needs It's like, don't, that's not the way he teaches us to pray, hoping for something. He says, in a sense, how, what it's like to trust in someone. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, what you want, that's what I want. Lord, I don't know, Hagar just cries out and weeps as she's listening to her son dying. You know those moments. I know those moments. And what I want us to see in this passage and what we need to notice is that God listens. God hears. God responds. Christianity is not a faith that teaches us how if we're good enough, we can avoid difficulty and pain. Jesus doesn't avoid difficulty and pain. But it does give us the promise that no pain can't be redeemed by God. That God transforms, that God molds, that God shapes 
God catches us when we're falling. It's an image that comes from Henry Nouwen, this idea of catching us when we are in need. Henry Nouwen, the great author and theologian, uh, and he writes about this from an experience, some of you may have heard of this before, when he went to a circus in Germany. Now, for any of you who speak German here, I'm not going to pronounce all these words right. I know I'm not going to pronounce them all right. I don't need emails this week about how to speak German. That's not the point, okay? So this week, just get past the German part, and let's focus on the actual point here, okay? I'm sorry for my lack of German, but I'm going to do my best. But Nowen writes about what that's like to trust in someone when you feel as though you're falling and in great peril. He says this. The Frying Rodleys are trapeze artists who perform in the German circus Simonit Barum. When the circus came to Freiburg two years ago, my friends Franz and Rennie invited me and my father to see the show. I will never forget how enraptured I became when I first saw the Rodleys move through the air, flying and catching as elegant dancers. The next day I returned to the circus to see them again and introduced myself to them as one of their great fans. They invited me to attend their practice sessions, gave me free tickets, asked me to dinner, and suggested I travel with them for a week in the near future. I did, and we became good friends. One day I was sitting with Rodley, the leader of the troop in his caravan, talking about flying. He said, as a flyer, I must have complete trust in my catcher. The public might think that I am the great star of the trapeze, but the real star is Joe, my catcher. He has to be there for me with split-second precision and grab me out of the air as I come to him in the long jump. How does it work, I asked. The secret, Rodley said, is that the flyer does nothing and the catcher does everything. When I fly to Joe, I, simply, I have simply to stretch out my arms and hands and wait for him to catch me and pull me safely over the apron behind the catch bar. You do nothing? I said, surprised. Mm -hmm. Nothing, Rodley repeated. The worst thing that a flyer can do is to try to catch the catcher. I'm not supposed to catch Joe. It's Joe's task to catch me. If I grab Joe's wrist, I might break them or he might break mine, and that would be the end for both of us. A flyer must fly, and a catcher must catch, and the flyer must trust with outstretched arms that his catcher will be there for him. When Rodley said this with so much conviction, the words of Jesus flashed through my mind, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Dying is trusting in the catcher. To care for the dying is to say, don't be afraid. Remember that you are the beloved child of God. He will be there when you make your long jump. Don't try to grab him. He will grab you. Just stretch out your arms and hands and trust, trust, trust. Now, Nowen is using this as a way of understanding death and when we are caring for those who are dying, and that is appropriate, but I think we can make this jump to any time in life when it feels like we are hurtling through the air in great danger and in great peril. The catcher catches Hagar. The catcher catches Ishmael and actually weaves them into the story that God has promised through Sarah and Isaac and Abraham. And God will catch you too. And you might be sitting there going, you have no idea what you're talking about. You have no idea what I've been through. You have no idea the abuse that I've suffered. You have no idea how hard it's been. You have no idea the scars that I have. You have no idea. You have no business telling me 
and I'm not pretending that I do, but if you're having a hard time believing that this could be true, know that you're in good company. Hagar was full of pain and racked with doubt. And maybe a good way for you to find some peace that the catcher will show up in your story again is to remember how you've been caught in the past. To remember when you've been flying through the air needing God to show up, how God has shown up in different ways. And as you remember those stories, perhaps that can help you. It can help you to have peace that God will catch you again. It's a hard story for Hagar, but there is good news that is here for the pain that is inflicted upon us in life. So that's number one. But the second way that we're going to look at this, and this has got to be quick, and I know because of time it's got to be quick, is that we don't just get to look at this from the perspective of, of Hagar when pain is inflicted upon us, but we also need to think about when we're in broken situations what it means to understand this passage from the perspective of Abraham and Sarah because they are not victims. They are authors of the pain. And whether we like to admit it or not, we too, when we get to the hard places in the world and the hard places in our life, we have to be willing to consider how it is that you and I are not just having pain inflicted upon us, but we are authors of pain and division and hardship. That's why we have a prayer of confession in our Sunday worship services. And it's not for like the four people that all of us kind of know should confess. We're not going to name you. We're not going to name you. Prayer of confession is for all of us. Because all of us fall short of what we're supposed to do. You see, not only have we been lied to and experienced the pain of that, but we've also lied. Not only have we been betrayed, but we have betrayed others. Not only have we talked about and been talked about by people behind our back, but we've contributed that to the ripping down of others. Not only have some people assumed the worst about us, we've done the same to them. We've spoken harsh words. We have been impatient. We have inflicted harm on those around us. And the opportunity to fly to the catcher in that place is to believe that in our pain of what we've caused, that God can make something new out of our lives. There are a lot of us here today who have great shame for things we've done in the past, who have guilt who are weighed down because we can't forgive ourselves, maybe because someone else hasn't yet forgiven us. Maybe because we can't believe we're worthy of forgiveness. But the catcher is there for us as well. And God can make change from the brokenness that we cause. I read recently about an individual who came home from work one day, and he, his wife was there, but his two children were not. And his wife said, um, I need you to know we're separating. And he said, what are you talking about? And she said, I've been trying to talk to you about the patterns in our marriage for a really long time, and I can't do this anymore. The kids are with my parents, and, um, and I, I don't know that we can make it going forward any further. And he said that he was so stunned, and he was so hurt, and he was so angry. In the lens of this passage, he was Hagar in his own mind. He and his wife did agree to go see a counselor, and as a good counselor will do, they both got to share their own stories, their own perspectives of what was going on, of the patterns that had developed in their lives and in their marriage and in their relationships. And he was validated in some of the places where he felt like pain had been inflicted upon him. 
And that was heartening for him. But he also had to listen to some things that were hard. And he had to fess up to the fact that he had a really stressful job and that he was bringing that stress home with him. And as the job got harder and as he kept advancing, the stress kept increasing. And so he felt justified to not really be present for his wife or his kids on a daily basis. He felt really justified about the fact that he was grouchy a lot of the time, and so he was grouchy, so he decided that he would just sort of take a step back because people didn't like being around him and his family when he was grouchy, so he just sort of stepped back from it all. Even though his wife was working full-time too, she really was in charge of the children, and she was really in charge of what was going on in the house. She was stressed out and running a thousand miles an hour and feeling unsupported. She was trying to express that to him, but he was, had too much on his plate, too much on his mind, and so he developed a habit of drinking bourbon most every night more than he should, of binging out on Netflix just to not think about things, of staying up after she had gone to bed and going to bed late, waking up not feeling great, and then going back to a stressful job and the cycle was just getting worse. And he had to own that he wasn't just Hagar, but he was also Abraham and Sarah. And he had to ask his wife for forgiveness. And he had to ask his children for forgiveness. And he had to figure out some new patterns. And he had to quit drinking on weekdays. And he deleted his Netflix account. And he found ways of trying to leave his stress at work at work so that when he got in, he was present for the people who he loved. And these stories aren't happily ever after stories. It's not like, oh, and they just lived and it was like that never happened before. But they are still together. And in many ways, they say that their marriage is stronger because they had to go through because they got some scars, but they worked through it. And God opened up something new in their lives. You see, when we are realizing where we are like Abraham and Sarah, we also have to trust in the catcher that God can forgive us even if we don't think we deserve it. That if we go and repent to someone else, that God can melt another's heart. Or that God can start a new chapter in our story even though we might have messed up the last one. Abraham and Sarah do something that is despicable, but they're not kicked out of the covenant with God. God's promise is stronger than their failure. And God still uses imperfect people like them to bless future generations, and we are a part of that covenant. Listen to this. God doesn't just catch the people who deserve to be caught. God catches people, all of us. Messy people like you and me. Messy people like Abraham and Sarah. Victimized people like Hagar. God catches people. And if you have messed up your story, I need you to hear there is nothing that you have done that God cannot forgive you for and use you to live a life of joy and purpose and influence in this world going forward. I don't think there is anyone after today that's like, oh, could we do a Bible study on Genesis 21? I just want to sit in that story as long as I can. There's just so much. Like, I just love it. There's no children's Bible where this is there, and there shouldn't be. If you ever see a children's Bible and they're like, we really get into Genesis 21, you should not buy it. You should not give it to a friend. That's a good editorial choice. I don't think we're ever going to see Genesis 21 posted on a wall anywhere. I don't, I don't recommend you text it to someone as an encouragement. Just read Genesis 21. This is what I think about you, right? Like, don't do that. But if we edit it out of our 
lives for being too messy, then we miss something because our lives are messy, because we are messy. This has something powerful to say about people, about us. And the beauty of how God responds in the messiness. Trust the catcher. Trust, trust, trust. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray for cycles of grace as we see in this story to wash over us and through us to others this day, this week, and always. In Jesus' name, amen.